Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers podcast, we're going to be starting in the book of Acts chapter 10. And as we like to do, we start with a prayer. I thought we'd do something just a little differently today in the way of a prayer. I picked up a small little book by Mother Teresa. It's entitled, In the Heart of the World, Thoughts, Stories, and Prayers. And so I'd like to read one of our prayers, and it kind of is—it's uh, it, what we try to do here at We Hold These Truths. The pr- prayer is entitled "Make Me an Instrument of Your Peace." Lord, make me an instrument of Your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Our works of love are nothing but works for peace. Let us do them with greater love and efficiency. It is always the same Christ who says, I was hungry, not only for food, but for peace that comes from a pure heart. I was thirsty, not only for water, but for peace that satiates the passionate thirst of a passion for war. I was naked, not only for clothes, but for the beautiful dignity of men and women for their bodies. I was homeless, not only for a shelter made of bricks, but for a heart that understands, that cares, that loves. Each of us is merely an instrument. All of us, after accomplishing our mission, will disappear. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone. We are going through the book of Acts, and sadly we're not finding what must be there if our dispensational and Zionist friends have a valid view of the Bible because their whole religion is based on the idea that the crucifixion of Jesus was a failure of God's plan to set up an earthly kingdom in the first century in Palestine. And um, we should see a bunch of scurrying around in the book of Acts trying to come up with some stopgap measure, which our Zionist friends think the church is. They don't believe the the church is mentioned in any Old Testament prophecy and so on. But we can't find it. 
any of those things. I don't know what the problem is. We are we are seeing Christ's plan falling into place exactly as predicted in the uh, book of Daniel and in all the other prophets. We're seeing the book of Isaiah being fulfilled in detail. Every messianic prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled by the time of the crucifixion is being fulfilled systematically as we go through the book of Acts. The the outline of the book was found back in chapter 1 where the resurrected Christ He's not upset. He doesn't act like anything has gone wrong at all. He spends 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, which if it was thousands of years in the future, long after they died, I don't know why he would waste his breath. But uh, he did for some reason. And he told them to remain in Jerusalem to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth and that Greek word for earth doesn't mean the a ball in space like we think of planet earth it meant the the established order or the land I'm not sure which word it was but it would have it would have conveyed the meaning of the Roman world the Roman Empire as they knew it and so we are now as we go into chapter 10 We've seen the first nine chapters devoted to the first three parts of the plan, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And now we begin, or this, this is really the budding of this fourth aspect of the plan, going to the uttermost part of the earth, because uh, even though Cornelius lives in Judea, he is an uncircumcised uh, Gentile, albeit a God-fearer. So this is going to be the the germ that blooms forth into the ministry to the rest of the Roman world, which will take up the remainder of the book of Acts. All right. It, if there's not any uh, comments from Travis or Tom, we can begin here by reading uh, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 10. All right. Leslie is not with us tonight. We're reading from the New King James Version here. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius? And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed... Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, great, thank you. So Caesarea was a phenomenal accomplishment. It was a city built from scratch pretty much by uh, Herod the Great. There was uh, some kind of settlement there, but there was not a, there was no harbor. It was right on the seacoast. 
and Herod created one of the most magnificent artificial harbors that had ever been built in the world up to that time and uh, dedicated it to Caesar, uh, which would have been Augustus at the time uh, when Herod the Great was alive. And it was about 30 miles north of Joppa. Joppa was the only real natural seaport on the Mediterranean coast of Palestine prior to the building of Caesarea. So it's about 30 miles to the north. Uh, Cornelius was an officer, the equivalent of a captain in the uh, United States Army, uh, leader of 100 men. The regiments were all named like we have our divisions and regiments uh, named in the United States Army. Uh, ironically, the Italian band probably had very few Italians in it. It was uh, at this time they have recovered a lot of the military records, and uh, Palestine was garrisoned by provincial troops, not not uh, Roman troops. But this uh, this unit probably was originally raised in Italy, but you you retired after uh, twenty years or 25 years and uh, they recruited replacements wherever the the uh, regiment was stationed at the time so by this time there probably weren't too many Italians the uh, lower ranking officers like the centurions were typically not of the uh, landed gentry who could uh, get an appointment but these were rather were very worthy soldiers who rose up through the ranks and received a commission, and uh, their pay was 15 times that of a normal soldier in the army. They had a lot of responsibility. If anything went wrong, they got blamed for it. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a two-edged sword. They Mark, weren't. I have a question. Yes. Were all the soldiers uh, Roman citizens then, or did they have non-Roman citizens in, in the army? That's an excellent question. Again, these provincials were uh, were not citizens. Roman citizenship was one of their retirement benefits. If they survived, and the survival rate was only about 50%, their oh, uh, wow. enlistment, which was uh, 20 years, and then it was, I believe, extended to 25, somewhere about this time in the, in the first century. They got a pension, and they got Roman citizenship. So it was a it was a good incentive for reenlistment, and a centurion would likely have already been given citizenship as a part of his promotion to being an officer in the Roman army. But I'm not quite sure of that. But that's my that's my uh, limited knowledge on that subject. Let me see here. My little reference book tells me. No, the, the the core Roman legions were only open to citizens of Rome, but these provincial groups uh, were not, and they got their uh, commission. But it doesn't tell me whether the officers had their uh, citizenship, uh, but I'm guessing that they probably did. Okay. We believe that uh, this happened around the year 41 because there there weren't actually Roman troops near Caesarea between 41 and 44. So, there again, the records are pretty good. So this, in all likelihood, occurs before the year 41. So this would mean that Cornelius would have 
retired before the Judean War started in uh, 66. All right, so Cornelius has been there for some time. He He's not a full convert, and we'll see that later on, because the events of chapter 10 are going to be a major topic of discussion amongst the disciples for months and years to come. And we'll see this brought up again and again. The As much as the Judeans loathed and despised the Samaritans, and John and his brother at one point asked Jesus to bring lightning down from heaven to burn up the Samaritans. <laughs> then John is the one who goes back and lays hands on them so that they can receive uh, miraculous gifts. <laughs> quite um, kind of turning swords into plowshares there. But, uh, you know, as much as they loathed the Samaritans, the Judean Christians in Jerusalem didn't have really any complaint about converting the Samaritans, but they had major issues here with Cornelius, which again we'll see as we get to chapter 11 and so on. So this... This lets us know that Cornelius was not circumcised. An uncircumcised uh, Gentile who went up to the temple and gave offerings and so on was known as a God-fearer. And it generally, when it, appear, when it appears um, it's in the Bible, it's talking about uh, righteous Gentiles who had not been circumcised. Circumcision served as a significant deterrent for uh, Gentiles, and I would think particularly Roman army officers, from uh, becoming full proselytes to Judaism. There was an official... Yes, go ahead. Did the Samaritans practice circumcision or... Oh, yes, I'm sure they would have, absolutely. Um, And that that would be the big difference. I mean, that's an excellent point. That that was the the sign of the blood covenant. And so as... You know, as imperfect as they were, they at least had the sign of the covenant, and Gentiles uh, did not. So that's an excellent point. Also, Roman soldiers were not allowed to marry during their term of service. And I thought, well, I wonder if that's where the Roman Catholic Church got their idea of uh, keeping all of the priests and nuns unmarried. Uh, just carried down from the Roman Imperial Army. (laughs) But of course, just like at the Catholic Church, it really doesn't work very well. So most of these officers would have had uh, concubines, illegal concubines, and mostly the superiors ignored ignored, uh, this. But if they were moving around a lot with their military station, they couldn't really maintain a, a real family. Uh, very well. So Cornelius could have had a concubine, but might not. When we when we hear about the household of Cornelius, this would definitely include any servants or free men that were working in his household. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean wife and children either. In, in all likelihood, does not, since uh, those things were prohibited by the Roman army regulations. Okay, so Cornelius is up there, and uh, 
he gave many alms to the by implication the Judean people and prayed constantly to the God of Israel, Yahweh. About 3 p.m., a, a, a messenger from God appears to him and speaks his name. It specifically said that he was afraid. The literal translations say terrified, which is understandable. I mean, we go back to Isaiah or Ezekiel. When God first appeared to them, they were terrified. Uh, fell, Ezekiel fell to the ground as one dead and uh, had to be <laughs> raised up off the ground by the power of God. John in the in the Revelation has the same experience. So it's not anything unusual that Cornelius was terrified here. The angel, though, gives him this very exciting news that his prayers and alms have gone up as a memorial before God, even though he's an uncircumcised uh, dog uh, in the Judean worldview. The angel tells him now to send men to Joppa, which would have been 30 miles to the south, and call for Simon, Peter, and tells him where he is uh, in the house of a Simon the Tanner uh, by the seashore. He will tell you what you should do. When the angel left, Cornelius called two of his servants and a soldier who would have served as the guard for the two servants. Um, it probably wasn't safe for any any person connected in any way with the Roman army to walk the streets and roads of Judea without some kind of uh, weaponry or armed escort. Having explained all things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So this is 3 p.m., and he gets them on the road uh, before dark. So he doesn't fool around. When the angel says, send men to Joppa now, Cornelius acts like a military officer or something, and he obeys <laughs> he gets them on the road now uh, i mean quickly they they gather things up and get them on the road because uh anyway that leads us to the next uh next paragraph so let's read uh after taking any comments let's read 9 through 16 uh, mark i had one little yeah. question i've always heard and i don't know how true it is that peter they considered Peter the first pope. Have you heard that? Oh yes, that's the that is the belief of every Roman Catholic in the world who has probably lived in the last. I don't know where they. I don't know where they get no wives because Peter had a wife, right? They were both executed, crucified. Right. I mean, we don't have a divine record of that, but we do have uh, a tradition recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And so, yeah, the, Paul's very clear that Peter had a wife. So, yeah, it's not, you know, the whole idea of Peter being the first pope is a, is kind of a distortion of the scriptures to begin with. He was, he did have a special place amongst the 12 apostles sent to the Judean people. He was more or less the preeminent one, but... uh to uh, turn that into the the Pope and a hierarchical institution is a is a real stretch, but they've gotten away with it for uh, over seventeen hundred years. <laughs> yeah, but see, the, my point is, if if they believe that, then why do they believe in priests not marrying? Well, where you know, that come from? I, well, I don't really know. Um, I don't know where that comes from. Uh, that was, of course, one of the first things that they scrapped in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, 
because it was so blatantly unbiblical. Okay. But yeah. uh, and and the Catholic Church is continually plagued by it. You know, it, it leads to uh, rampant homosexuality, child abuse, and adultery. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's in it's in the headlines constantly the last ten, twenty, thirty years. Sure. And and sure. before the internet, it was going on just as much. It just didn't get as much uh, press. So it's it's a it's a it's an unbiblical doctrine that uh, you know is just going to cause trouble to the Catholic Church as long as they uh, sustain it. Okay, thank you. Starting in verse nine, the next day, as they went out on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. All right, thank you. So they got uh, a little ways on the road and camped probably for the night, got up early, and uh, got to Joppa by noon. So uh, they covered the 30 miles pretty expeditiously. Peter had gone up on the housetop to pray, uh, this being about the sixth hour, which is noon, the midday. He was hungry, and he was uh, ready to eat. And apparently the servants of the tanner, Peter's host, were getting lunch ready. But while he's up on the roof um, praying, this was not the two normal times of prayer for a Judean they normally they would pray at like nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, which was the time when the daily lambs were sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem, which of course kind of cleared the blood of these innocent sheep, cleared the way for the saints of the wicked and transgressing people to rise up as an acceptable offering before uh, before God. And of course. Uh, Cornelius had been praying at 3 p.m., the time of the afternoon offering. Uh, Peter is probably adding in extra uh, times of prayer, noon. And we see Daniel doing this back in the days of the Persian Empire uh, in the book of Daniel. Um, he's up there. He happens to be real hungry when he's praying, which is significant because he sees... he. The Greek word is ecstasy. It's where our English word ecstasy comes from. He fell into ecstasy. So his mind was not, uh, well, I don't want to mean it's abnormal, but I mean it it became uh, uh, taken over by this vision where he saw 
something like a huge sheet, like a giant sail maybe, let down by four corners uh, down to the ground, and there were all manners of beasts and creeping things uh, there. By implication, we learn later that there were probably a mix of uh, of clean animals with lots and lots of unclean animals uh, regarding the law of Moses uh, in this vision. And he was told to uh, get up, kill, and eat. Peter, he kind of acts like he, this is a test, you know. <laughs> God's telling him to... Uh, get up, kill, and eat an unclean animal, Peter begins arguing with God, more or less. Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common and unclean. What God has cleansed, don't make common. And three times, uh, and in the Hebrew mind, uh, repeating something three times had uh, great, great significance. You repeat it once, amen and amen, like Jesus did as he was teaching, that was very important, but if you repeated it three times, that was extremely important. And that's where our song, Holy, 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 that's uh, what that's based on, is the idea of repeating that three times to emphasize how important the holiness of God is. Um, so he gets this uh, this vision three times, and he's... Uh, He's arguing and kind of fighting and bucking against it there. Now, let's, well, we can go on here. 17 down through 23, again, allowing for any comments. Okay. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Judeans, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanying him. All right, great, thank you. Now, we have here kind of a pair of interlocking visions. Here we have Cornelius getting a vision to say, send somebody to Peter, and now Peter is getting a vision saying, men are coming to you, go with them. This also happened in Acts 9, where Saul of Tarsus was given a vision told him to go into Damascus and someone would fetch him. And then Ananias, he gets a vision telling him to go and meet up with this murderous scum Saul. And, you know, those two visions interlocked. And, and uh, real, that that only happened, I think, once in the Old, Old Testament, somewhere back in the times of the kings of uh, Judah, where there were two 
interlocking visions like that. So here we get it uh, twice in a row, both connecting with the commissioning of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and to the first conversion of the Gentiles here in Acts 10. So again, further adding to the emphasis that God and the importance that God places on this as the fourth leg of that plan that Christ announced in in Acts 1. So Peter's sitting there baffled by this vision of the of all these animals and everything. And then at that moment these three messengers from Cornelius are outside the gate. They of course they could have come in but they they understood that uh the Judeans were real sensitive about Gentiles contaminating their space, so they were very polite and stayed outside the gate and called and asked if Simon Peter was staying there. The, uh, the Spirit uh, of God dwelling within Peter tells him, look, there's three men looking for you. Get up, go down, and go with them, doubting nothing, because I have sent them. So Peter goes down. Again, all the all the houses in the first century in Palestine would have been masonry, rock houses with flat roofs. And the roof was used for sleeping in the summer when it was too hot to sleep down in the enclosed muggy space. It was used for drying um, vegetables, crops, and things like that, protected from animals. And there would, there would probably have been a, a ladder or stairway down from the roof uh, down to the yard. Um, so he he goes down, and just as he's been uh, told to do, and he tells them, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come here? And so they tell him about Cornelius, who we've already been introduced, and of him being a God-fearer, was warned by a, angel to send for you to his house to hear words from you. So he called them in and lodged them. So this is his first departure from custom. He not only let them through the gate, but let them come in the house and stay there. It wasn't even his house, but presumably Simon the Tanner trusted uh, Simon Peter <laughs> enough in this matter. So they, they extended hospitality to Gentile, which is unusual in and of itself. Um, on the morning they got up and uh, went, they had to go 30 miles north. Certain of the brethren from Joppa went with him, which will prove to be a very good thing uh, once he's called on the carpet for these strange actions here. Okay. We are ready now. Let's see, this is a long part, so let's just read down through verse 33, please. Okay. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Judean man to keep company with or go to 
one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, I, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. All right, thanks. Now, the law of Moses did not actually prohibit an Israelite from entering into a Gentile's house. But it had become accepted that that it was really not acceptable (laughs) to go into a Gentile's house long before the first century because the main thing would have been the food. It would have been rude for the host not to offer refreshments or food of some sort, and none of the food in a Gentile's house would have been kosher, would have been prepared or selected according to all the various regulations contained in the Law of Moses. So for all practical considerations, it was virtually impossible for a Judean at this time, an Israelite in earlier times, to enter into a Gentile's house without defiling themselves and making themselves ceremonially unclean and unsuitable to uh, be at the temple in in Jerusalem. So uh, they they would have avoided any possibility of having to go into a Gentile's house for, for generations here before this event in Caesarea. It doesn't look like Peter and his friends were quite as fast marchers as Cornelius' servants because it took them a whole day and then they still had to camp and then the next day they got uh, there to his house. Cornelius had gathered together uh, all, apparently everyone who had respect for him. He had relatives living in the area and uh, near friends. And Caesarea was a a Greek-Roman city. I'm sure there would have been a Judean contingent there, but it was was the headquarters for the Roman occupation of Palestine. And so it it would have been predominantly peopled by uh, Romans, and there would have been a lot of uh, civil servants and high muckety-muck officials and so on, and lower officials, and we don't know from which circles Cornelius drew his friends, but wherever they came from, they were all waiting there for Peter. The Roman, well, the Greco-Roman culture, of course, had a pantheon of gods, but also a plethora of uh, demigods, semi-divine men, perhaps fathered by gods, who had uh, amazing powers. Hercules is one that we talk of commonly and so on. And... uh, 
those who were perceived to be of this class were worshipped after a form in in a way similar to what Cornelius offers here to Peter. But he may not intend this to be, you know, worship per se, but either way, Peter kind of, uh, you know, says, don't, wait, 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 don't do this. I'm a man just like you are. And Peter reminds them that it's unlawful for a Judean to come in to one from another nation. But because God has showed him that he can't call any man common or unclean, that he came without hesitation when he was sent for, and he asks what the reason was that he was sent for. So Cornelius gives a recap of this appearance of the angel four four days before, and told how that he had been commanded to send for Joppa and ask for Simon and uh, all the little details there. So now we are all here present in the sight of God to hear all of the things that have been commanded you from the Lord. And so now Peter will begin to uh, tell them what they've been waiting for. So let's read 34 down through 43, please. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Judeans and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Great. So here we get probably a very uh, compressed version of what Peter told this crowd that Cornelius had had assembled and he basically reminds them of the new of the common knowledge about Jesus Christ uh, and he says as you yourselves know in verse 37 the anointing of of Christ um by the spirit of God is mentioned and of course anointing this is a sign of a uh, of royalty of of a king and so again this doesn't really fit with our dispensational friends view that the kingdom was postponed or failed because uh the anointing of the messiah which means the anointed one is spoken of as an accomplished uh, fact 
And uh, Peter just mentioned that he's one of the witnesses who, you know, was there who saw these things. And uh, he, you know, he's not politically correct at all because he says that the Judeans slew Jesus. He should have, to be politically correct, he should have said the Romans army slew him. But wait, Cornelius is a Roman army officer. <laughs> so he, but uh, no, the, the Judeans, of course, did it. Uh, Pilate allowed them to do it, which was his grievous mistake. But, uh, but they certainly did do it, as Peter here affirms. God raised him up on the third day, and uh, he appeared not to everyone, but just to these witnesses chosen before of God. And then the, this mission that we keep reading about in Acts 1, the charge from Jesus to preach to the people and to testify that this is he who is ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So Peter just gives him a good recap. In verse 43, we, we have a reminder that the prophets all bear witness of, the, of Jesus Christ. And this is not quite as strong a statement as we had back in Acts 3, where Peter had said that all of the prophets from Samuel on spoke of those days, the days in which they were living. But this is, you know, this is in that same uh, ilk, and it's, it's still kind of leaves out all of our friends and neighbors and uh, neoconservatives who who still expect most prophecy to be yet fulfilled uh, at the in the unknown future the prophet's main purpose was to bear witness of Jesus of Nazareth not of some future physical nation in Palestine that's that's just my soapbox statement very the, well, I agree. The yeah, the purpose of the you know the, through the name of Christ, everyone who believes will receive remission of sins. This is this was the important message of the prophets, not to predict the year of some World War Three Armageddon or anything like that. The purpose of the prophets was to announce and predict the uh, the remission of sins through the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, have we got enough time, Tom, to do the last four verses here? I think so. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. All right. So Peter's interrupted. He's going on with this, you know, probably much lengthier discourse than we have record of. And in... Before he's done, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles who had gathered to listen. And this is uh, really significant. I mean, this, this is really parallel to a number of events in the Bible. We probably could go further back, but we'll just start at Mount Sinai when the tabernacle was dedicated. 
the people all could see the fire and cloud visibly go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, God's presence filling his dwelling place. And then when Solomon dedicated his temple in Jerusalem, uh, that was really amazing. That's If we go back to Second Chronicles chapter 7, 2, the, the, it says, The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord came upon the house, they lowered themselves with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshipped and they praised Yahweh, saying, He is good, His mercy endures forever. So, this was the most memorable happening of the dedication of the Temple of Solomon. Now, that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians at 586 B.C. It was rebuilt some 70 years later. And when they dedicated this other temple, nothing happened. In fact, the throne chair of God, the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the middle of the holy place, Holy of Holies, was gone. So there was no throne, and God never came in to enter into his throne room. And Herod the Great beautified that temple, which was rather plain, it was a 40-some-odd-year project that was, that was still unfinished uh, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion that turned it into one of the most marvelous buildings in the world. But God had never visibly entered in to dwell there. The throne room was empty. What, what happened instead was that when Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, then the Spirit descended on him, just like it had at the dedication of the temple and the tabernacle, and Peter mentioned that in his lesson. And right after he mentions that, uh, the same thing happens here to the Gentiles. Now, this had happened on the day of Pentecost to the uh, disciples and to the new converts. And this, I would, I would suggest, is parallel. Because the new temple is not a temple made with hands, but it is a temple of living stones. And so just as God came to dwell in the tabernacle, just as he came to dwell in Solomon's temple, just as he did not come to dwell in the second temple, just as he came to dwell in the fleshly body of Jesus Christ, now he is coming to dwell in the believers. First the Judeans at Pentecost, now the Gentiles, the fourth step of the plan from Acts 1. So God's Spirit is falling and dwelling in these Gentiles. And this was shocking to the Judeans who were there. They were absolutely shocked, the ones that came with Peter, because they couldn't understand how God's presence could indwell an uncircumcised dog. They heard the Gentiles speaking in languages and magnifying God just like it happened to the Judean disciples on the day of Pentecost. So they're all kind of in shock. But Peter, it says, Can any man forbid water that these should not be immersed to have received the Holy Spirit just like we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay there uh, certain days. <laughs> And so these Gentiles were now just like the chosen 
people. They were chosen people. They are chosen people, yes. And this this goes back. I mean, it, it ties a lot of things together. We'll 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 be able to talk more about this as we go through eleven and as we go through Paul's work, because this is going back to the song of Moses, the curse proclaimed upon Israel in their final days, that they would they would fall so far away from God, they would not believe, they would commit a horrible crime, and that in those days the Lord would provoke them to jealousy by calling a people who were no people his people. <laughs> and this is what's just happened right here in Caesarea in the household of Cornelius. The, the calling of the Gentiles is the last effort to save Old Covenant Israel from destruction by uh, provoking them to jealousy. So we'll see how it plays out in the chapters to follow. Great. Thank you, Mark. That was an excellent study, and we'll look forward to starting in Chapter 11. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.